Listening to episode 724 of Unwelcome Guests, calling a scad a scad. I'm Robin Upton. Now you may be wondering what a scad is. Well, a scad is a state crime against democracy, and crimes perpetrated by criminals are worthy of punishment. That's quite a different frame than the rather ill-fitting CIA-framed term conspiracy theory. This week we begin our radio adaptation of the best movie ever made about Operation Gladio, Alan Frankovich's famous 1992 expose from the Time Watch series. That movie is two and a half hours long, so inevitably it's going to take more than one episode. We're going to begin with a talk. This is from September the 6th, 2013. It's a soundtrack of a YouTube video, very slightly edited to remove inaudible bits and improve audio quality in various places. But I shall link to the original download from this episode's webpage, unwelcomeguests.net slash 724. The speaker is Professor Lance Dehaven-Smith. I thought there would be investigations after the 2000 election and that the crimes that were committed would be prosecuted or at least made known. And what happened instead was people were told, just move on, get over it. You know, there was an investigation, but it was set up so that it said the, the inquiry was about the technology and they, it wasn't about the partisanship in the election administration. Have you seen this movie Recount? It goes over, well, they're actual crimes that are displayed in the movie, but you don't know they're crimes unless you know the law. On the morning after the election, the, after Election Day, the general counsel, the lawyer in Jeb Bush's, Governor Jeb Bush's office, called the five largest law firms in Florida and told them that the governor didn't want them working for Al Gore. And they didn't work for him. They, he had to hire an attorney from out of state. They got boys. And... Um, this is reported in the movie. It's just kind of a matter-of-fact thing. But the reality was that that was a felony. That was use of public office for coercion. They were threatening these law firms with loss of business if they took on Gore's case. Well, there were many crimes like that committed during the 2000 election, and nothing was done. And even the movie recount, you know, it shows um, James Baker. He comes across as this real tough guy who's, you know, really competent. And Warren Christopher, the, the leader of the Democratic of Gore's campaign, comes across as this wimp who gets, you know, pushed around by Baker. The reality was Warren Christopher was following the law. He was doing what the law said. He wanted to do the right thing. And Baker was abusing the law. So it was very frustrating seeing this. 
And I started, I wrote a book about the 2000 election and specified the crimes that were committed. It was published by the University Press of Florida, an academic book. Got relatively little attention, but it, it laid the, the facts were there. But when I, I saw that nothing was going to happen about it, I started studying this topic. And um, I came up with this term, state crimes against democracy. I have a, a definition for it. Concerted actions or inactions by government insiders intended to manipulate democratic processes and undermine popular sovereignty. It's a terribly turgid definition. The way I developed it was I did a list of, of what these suspicious events are. There's some that we know, there's no dispute about uh, the uh, Watergate break-in, the crimes of Watergate, the Iran-Contra scandal, the, the uh, outing of Valerie Plain, the lying us into war in Iraq. This is all documented. So we know that there are these high crimes to subvert democratic processes. And so, but I did a list that included others that we suspect that. Uh, the, the Kennedy assassination, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Robert Kennedy, uh, George Wallace, the attempt on his life, the attempt on Ronald Reagan's life. Uh, the 1968 October surprise. I'll, I'll tell you about what these are. But anyway, it was a long list. It was like 20, 20 something events, about a third of which were well confirmed and others uh, we were suspicious about. And I extrapolated from that list to come up with this definition. The basic idea was to have a name for the type of crime that the term conspiracy theory discourages us from speaking about. If we can't name the crime, it's very hard to discuss it. And, I, and I, I was thinking about it like white-collar crime or juvenile crime. We needed a name for this kind of crime that we could then study and get, you know, basic ideas about the profile, who commits these crimes, what are the institutional loca- the vulnerabilities. I say actions or inactions. When there's a stand-down like there was on 9-11 appears to be where people don't defend the country, that's a that's a scad. That's a crime in itself. It's a treason, a form of treason. Um, the Vietnam War was started on a false pretense. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was passed. This is, we had our gunships uh, off the islands of North Vietnam, and we were firing on these islands, uh, large cannon fire. And then when the North Vietnamese would come out, we would race back to international waters, and. Uh, our ships reported they were attacked uh, in the summer of 1964, and uh, they said that they were doing nothing. They were in international waters, minding their own business. And so the administration lied to Congress and got that war started when it was really a provocation or a kind of an inaction. I use government insiders because I'm not – it doesn't always – it isn't always the case that it's somebody in government. It can be a political insider. I'm thinking about Nixon. Nixon, in 1968, was running for president. And uh, he, there were peace talks going on between North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and the United States. And Nixon thought if they made peace, that he would not win the election, that Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic candidate, would win the election. And so he sent word to North Vietnam to their president saying, stop, withdraw from the peace talks, and I'll get you a better deal. Um, that's a treason. I mean, what the man did was treason. 
Uh, the reason we know about this is because Lyndon Johnson, we have a taped telephone call between Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen, a, a U.S. senator, Republican leader at the time. And Lyndon Johnson knew that Nixon had done this because he had wiretapped Nixon's plane, his campaign plane. Yeah. I mean, these guys, I mean, they do all this stuff. I mean, uh, Mission Impossible, you know, I mean, this is what these people do. Um, this came out in 1997, and Nixon, uh, Johnson is talking to the Dirks, and he says, I can't believe he's done this. He sabotaged the peace talks. This is treason, but I'm not going to tell the American people because it would destroy their faith in their leaders and their country. So we learn about this in 1997. It's in the news one day. You know, and this is a, these events, they eventually, many of them, they eventually become known, and we understand the dynamics of them and who was involved. But it's often long after the event. It receives very little attention, and there's no effort to go back and rewrite history with the awareness of this. But anyway, the point was Nixon was not in office, but he was a political insider, and he was doing this as an anti-democratic uh, high crime. I've written a number of articles about this. I won't belabor this much, but I wanted you to know I first wrote about it with, and defined the state crimes against democracy concept or construct in 2006. And I started working with this guy, Matthew Witt. Matthew T. Witt is a professor at uh, Laverne University in California. And I have to tell you, I when I first... When you, when, you, when you accept that John Kennedy was assassinated by the government, when you, and the evidence is very strong for that, at the very least, the government covered up that it was a conspiracy. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. And once you come to understand that, you, it, you should rethink how you think about American government. From then on, you should, you should say, well, you know, these guys are capable of some pretty outlandish things. But my, my tendency was I would, I would admit this about Kennedy. I would admit Watergate. Everybody knows Watergate. Uh, I think we tend to minimize it. Um, Watergate is called the Watergate burglary. It was actually a wiretapping. Um, and the people who were arrested were going back in to the National Democratic Party headquarters. They had wiretapped it three weeks prior. And they, were, they had transcripts, and they were reading them. But one of the wiretaps went out. So they, went, they were going back into the National Democratic Party headquarters to replace that wiretap, and they got arrested. The two principals, Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, worked for the White House and were consultants for the committee to reelect the president. They had planned uh, to kill Jack Anderson, an, an investigative reporter, and Teddy Kennedy, and they had... Uh, monitored Teddy Kennedy's activities, um, but the plan was called off. There are many other things. I mean, uh, when the Watergate, uh, when the guys were arrested, Howard Hunt sent his wife, Dorothy Hunt, to the White House to tell the White House, look, all of these people that have been arrested in Watergate have obligations. We have mortgages to pay. We have kids in college. We expect our our expenses to be covered. They, they said if, if you're in the CIA and you're arrested overseas, they take care of your family. And they felt like they were working for the president. They thought it was a, a legitimate operation, and, and they should be covered. Nixon referred to it as hush money. 
He understood it was blackmail. But and and um, John Dean speaks about Dorothy Hunt and says that she was just a completely savvy person. That she was, you know, wife of a CIA agent and had gone all over the world. And she had been a CIA agent in France before she married Howard Hunt. Well, Dorothy gets. Uh, Several hundred thousand dollars for the Watergate burglars, as they call it. They call the Watergate burglars because the day after it happened, the press secretary, uh, the President Nixon, said this is a third-rate burglary attempt. We had nothing to do with it. It's just a, a screw-up by these overzealous campaigners. And we call it a burglary to this day when it was espionage at the highest level, you know, attacking uh, the opposition Democratic Party uh, during a presidential election. What I wanted to tell you about Dorothy Hunt, though, was uh, she was on a plane flight to Chicago with $10,000 in cash to disperse, and her plane crashed, and she was killed. Uh, there was a grand jury impaneled in Chicago, and they brought Robert Haldeman in to testify because they thought it had been that he had killed her, that the, that the Nixon people had killed her. Uh, there was no evidence, and, it, and, and all they did was make him testify, and then they let him go. We know this in part because Haldeman tells this to Nixon in the White House, and we have it on the White House tapes. But the point is, Watergate was more than a burglary. I mean, we're talking about a crime spree of fairly wide proportions. The break-in to Howard Hunt's psychiatrist office, uh, Howard Hunt's uh, uh, Ellsberg's psychiatrist office, there were a hundred break-ins like that around Washington at that time, where the people's psychiatrists had their files rifled when they were uh, providing service, uh, psychoanalytic ser ther services to very important people's wives or husbands. So Watergate was, you know, this massive crime spree. Wit got me thinking about it in those terms. You know, he, he would say, I would say, well, you know, Nixon was crazy. I, I thought of Nixon as a, I, mean, I think most of us do think about him as, you know, he was, he was paranoid and nuts and a gangster. Uh, it took me a while to get used to the idea that a lot of them are like that. It's not just him, <laughs> you know. Um, so he helped me with that. We wrote an article in 2010 that was published in the American Behavioral Scientist, which is a fairly widely read journal. And it got, there was an op-ed that was written by Mickey Huff, uh, some guys at Project Censored. They said that they wrote about this, this study and they submitted it to a, a web, an online website that they had published other things in. And they were told they would not publish this because it was on conspiracy theory and they were stunned I mean they said this is what we do we publicize things that are being stifled and we had this outlet and they told us that we couldn't publish on that um, but I don't think many people would have read it if these guys hadn't hadn't publicized it I wrote a, an article on the Nuremberg war crimes trials and this was kind of shocking to me to go back and read about this um, I was teaching a class on international conflict and international law. And uh, so I read the Constitution, I read the UN Charter, 
And I read the, the uh, War Powers Resolution of 1973 and the 2001 authorization to use military force against the people who planned 9-11 and the 2002. And, and what I found was we break the law all the time. Okay? I mean, when we threaten Syria, that's a violation of the U.N. Charter. We are signatories to the U.N. Charter. Our Constitution says our treaties are the highest law of the land. They're higher than the law. They're higher than the Constitution. And that, that treaty says we're not going to invade people unless we're being attacked. And, and we have to get a resolution from the United Nations to, do, to continue, even if we're attacked. We have to get their support to continue it. But we, we violate it all the time. Well, I went back. I said, you know, let's look at the Nuremberg War Crimes trials. And to my surprise, what I found was that the first charge in the indictment of the Nazi war criminals was a, was a conspiracy, a conspiracy charge. They had conspired to overthrow the parliamentary government in Germany and then warmonger and, and strike fear into people's hearts and then start an aggressive war against other countries. Do you know what we did to these people? We hung them. We hung them. They included not only politicians, they included diplomats who were fronting for the Nazi uh, war of aggression. They included journalists who were warmongers and anti-Semites. They included lawyers. We prosecuted these, these criminal cases because we are, you know, after the war, Stalin said, let's kill all the officers in the Nazi army. And uh, Churchill said, no, no, we can't do that. Let's kill 20,000 of them. <laughs> and it was kind of glib, but that's really what they said. And the Americans said, no, we, need to, we have to in- teach a lesson to the German people. We have to show them what their leaders did. And we have to show them that they have a responsibility as citizens in, a, in an elected representative democracy to not let power be consolidated and to never let this happen again. The Germans have learned that lesson pretty well. I mean, they're very cautious about what they do in foreign policy. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. My name is Kathleen, and I think that Nazi Germany never really ended, just a show was put on and they've been transferred here. Well, there's an operation called Paperclip where we brought in their, their intelligence apparatus, basically wholesale, into the United States. And what I did in this article was simply compare what the Bush-Cheney administration did in terms of twisting the intelligence and telling people that we were going to be a, a potentially, that this country was trying to build nuclear bombs and had weapons of mass destruction and they could give them to terrorists and we were in peril. When they knew otherwise, they knew otherwise. They, You know the torture that we talk about? The torture occurred in August of 2002 at Guantanamo Bay. There were two people tortured, and they were waterboarded like 186 times. I mean, it was a horrendous thing. But what they were doing was trying to get confessions linking 9-11 to the Iraq, to the country of Iraq. And once they couldn't get that, they stopped it. There was, there was every grave and all that. That was different. This, this was torture that was, came right out of the White House. So anyway, I, I, I did this article and said, if you look at what the Bush-Cheney administration did and you compare it to our charges against the Nazis at, at Nuremberg, you'll find they're parallel, almost exactly, bang, bang, bang. Uh, I could not get that published in the United States. 
I had it reviewed at one journal three times, and the, the reviewers kept saying, this is a great article. This is an important article. We cannot publish it. Literally, I'd never seen anything like this. I submitted it to Contemporary Politics was the name of the journal, and they published it right away. It's published in, in London. It's a British journal. It taught me a lesson about what we're, what we're up against. It, science is supposed to be a search for the truth. It's not a, a, an, an organ of legitimation for the power structure in America, but that's pretty much what it appears to be because it was too controversial. I knew the editor. He was a good friend of mine. He kept trying. He wanted to publish it. And he would send it to three reviewers every time, and we would get these split decisions with a very strong, we can't publish it. I had submitted another article, the one that got published in the American Behavioral Scientist, I submitted to the Public Administration Review, the major journal for Amer- the American Society of Public Administration. It was reviewed, and two reviewers said we should publish it, and one reviewer said don't. That's a split decision, and the typical thing is they have you make revisions and then publish it. Well, I made the revisions, resubmitted it, and the editor writes me back and says, we had one of the reviewers who had said publish change his mind, and he said don't publish it. He said it was too good for their journal. I, honest to God, he said it's too good for our journal. I went to the editorial board meeting that year, and it was in Miami, and complained about it, and this was the only time this had ever happened in the history of the journal. And the editor apologized to me at the meeting. He said, but that's the way it goes. I mean, we're not going to overrule the reviewers. Well, and what I assumed, being a conspiracy theorist, that there had been a conspiracy <laughs> to keep this from being published. But I've, I've had some interesting experiences with all this. But my, my, the reason I tell you about it is you're probably not aware of the, the academic background on it. And there's a pretty good body of research now that establishes that there are these kinds of crimes, they need to be looked at comparatively and collectively together so you see patterns in them, and that you can't depend on the government to, there are a number of reasons I'll go over why, why we can't depend on the government to give us the truth. There's a book on, from Paul Gray Macmillan on state crimes against democracy, that's the title of the book, so the term's getting out, that just came out about three months ago. And then this book I wrote because a friend of mine uh, Mark Crispin Miller at New York University asked me to write it. I'd written a chapter on the 2000 election for a book of his, and it was like 2006, and he said, you ought to write an, a book on this. And so I, I really appreciate his help in helping me frame it. I won't belabor this, but I just want to point out that SCAD is not a conspiracy theory. It's not a term for that. It's a term for the crime we wouldn't say white-collar conspiracy, you know, or white-collar theory. We would say white-collar crime. And it's the same way with state crimes. You have to think in terms of crimes, not theories of crimes. I think you all know that it's in this, a pejorative term. The problems with the term conspiracy theory, it's a, it's a totally nonsensical term. The way it's used is anything that is suspicious of government insiders conspiring to to subvert democratic processes is considered ludicrous, paranoid. Well, the, it's nonsensical because we know conspiracies happen. We had Watergate. We had Iran-Contra. We had Plangate. We know conspiracies happen. So it's, it's crazy to say any, any suspicion of conspiracy has got to be ludicrous. It's quite the opposite. You should 
you should be carefully discerning what are reasonable suspicions and what are not. The conspiracy theory label lumps everything together, it, from aliens taking over the planet to who com, uh, assassinated Kennedy. And you lump them all together and then take the most ludicrous example and, and equate all other suspicions with that. Uh, that's not reasonable. That's unreasonable. Conspiracy theory label is un-American. The Declaration of Independence is a conspiracy theory. I urge you to read it. The first part of the Declaration is about inalienable rights, but then it goes on to list a set of crimes that King George committed or was suspected of committing that were intended together to deprive the, the colonists of their rights as British citizens. And they said they suspected that King was trying to gain tyranny over them and that that gave them the right, not any of the crimes individually, but what they suspected about his motives. So people who say conspiracy theory is ludicrous forget that America was founded on a conspiracy theory. I've already mentioned the Nuremberg War Crimes Trials. That's Robert Jackson, who was a Supreme Court justice, who was our prosecutor in Nuremberg. When people use the term conspiracy theory, what they're forcing on you, in addition to shutting you up and saying that you're crazy, what they're, what they're suggesting is that the official account of these events is solid, strong evidence, and what you've got is speculation and, you know, at the very least, dubious. But in reality, if you look at the official accounts of things like the Kennedy assassination or 9-11, basically they are coincidence theories. They're troubling patterns that on their face look suspicious and they're dismissed as coincidences. When you talk about 9-11 to somebody or the anthrax letter attacks or the Kennedy assassination, they will tell you that the American government would not commit crimes like this. And furthermore, if they did commit them, they're not competent enough to do it. They couldn't pull it off. And furthermore, if they, by some fluke they did succeed in doing one of these things, they couldn't keep it quiet. Somebody would talk. So there's this assumption that you couldn't do these things. They're just on its face. I have uh, Daniel Ellsberg's book, Secrets, the cover up there. It's a great book. What he reminds us of is that the Manhattan Project, which involved 100,000 people developing the atomic bomb, was kept secret throughout World War II. Totally secret. Truman, when he became president after FDR died, he did not know about the atomic bomb for a week until they told him. It's kept secret through compartmentalization, the need to know. People are working on it, but they don't know what it is. They're doing this part, they're doing that part, building the casing, you know. So it's quite easy for the government to keep secrets. It does a, an excellent job of it. It's got a very sophisticated technique for doing it. Ellsberg also points out that people who are privy to these secrets think they are really special, think that they really know what's up. So they don't want to tell anybody. That what they do is remain silent. He says they listen to people and they think in their minds, if this person knew what I knew, they wouldn't be saying what they're saying. They consider everybody else really just foolish and out of the loop. And the last problem with the conspiracy theory label is that people who use it attack individuals. They attack individuals who say that John Kennedy was killed by more than one shooter or 9-11 was... Uh, a controlled demolition of the buildings. 
They attack individuals, but they never talk about the conspiracy theories of the institutions, of the government itself. The conspiracy theory of Iraq trying to get nuclear weapons. Now, that was a dangerous conspiracy theory. That was a conspiracy theory that cost 100,000 lives and thousands of our soldiers. That was a dangerous conspiracy. Does anybody say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. You shouldn't say that. No, no. So it's really a terrible term. Yes, sir. One other thing I'd just throw on the false Please. premise. There's a very important false premise that we have, like, free press in this country that's aggressive and, and that is, just can't wait to expose these kind of things. And if you just go to them and show them the evidence, they'll run right over to the cameras. And You're absolutely correct. There's an article by uh, Sunstein, the guy who wrote about Cass. What, what is it? Cass, Cass Sunstein. His wife is Samantha Power, the, the new... UN person. Oh, God. He said exactly what you said. He said the newspapers, the, you know, it, it would come out. People would sell it. You know, if you, had, if you knew there was one of these big conspiracies, you'd go to the media and sell your story. Uh, if you look at that article and at the footnotes, you know, what's his evidence for this? And he says, well, like, uh, we found out about the warrantless wiretaps that the Bush administration was doing. Well, yeah, we found out about them, but it was only two years after the 2004 election. They, they knew about it at the New York Times and held that uh, until after the election. It would never have told us, except one of their reporters, James Rison, was publishing a book in 2005 that had this in there, that they, they had done these warrantless wiretaps. So I think that's a very good point, and uh, you're absolutely correct. There's the assumption that the press would would talk, and in reality, the press is the big gatekeeper of all this stuff. So why do we use the term conspiracy theory? I mean, if it's so stupid and un-American and nonsensical and befuddling, why do we use it? Well, it turns out that the term was popularized by the Central Intelligence Agency in response to the critics of the Warren Commission. In 1967, the Central Office of the CIA sent a memo to all its stations around the world telling them to contact their media assets and tell them if they come across people criticizing the, the Warren Commission report to call them conspiracy theorists, say there's no evidence of a conspiracy, uh, say that if there had been a conspiracy, somebody would have talked, the newspapers would have uncovered it. It's all the things we hear today about conspiracy theory, the criticisms of it, were in this memo. In my book, I, I replicate the memo in... Uh, the appendix. This was reported in the New York Times in 1976 when the memo was declassified and mistakenly declassified. Uh, it was in the news one day, and that was it. Well, they also said they they said you should tell people who are who are labeling people con conspiracy theorists they should say that the conspiracy theorist is under the sway of communist propagandist. So the idea was if you talked about Kennedy being assassinated by one of our people that it was uh, something the communists were, were uh, pushing on us. And it was applied to the assassinations of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, Wallace. When Robert Kennedy was, was assassinated, the night he was assassinated, the police are radioing. They were chasing people who they thought might have been involved in it. One of them was this woman that wore the polka dot dress. It, this is our, kind of an arcane point. But what's interesting is the the police say on the radio 
Don't chase this person. We don't want another conspiracy theory. So they're already using this term by 1968 and trying to, uh, and being concerned about it. This is just a chart showing the, the number of stories in the New York Times with the term conspiracy theory in it. I don't know what more to say about it, but I did want to mention, does anybody here know about Google Ngram search in the letter N dash Graham, R-G-R-A-M? They have a program where they've scanned in books, 5 million books from the year 1500 to 2008, and you can do a word search on terms and see how often it maps it out for you, just like this. And you can put in conspiracy theory, and it'll show you. It's a fast. It's, it's very interesting to work with. I'm trying. One of the things I'm trying to do is develop a forensic science for tracking these memes, because that's what the government's doing. And we realize that. We know that they, you know, when they devise a, a war plan, they'll think up some term like, you know, uh, Operation Iraqi Liberation. Oh, no, that was, that was oil. Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, but they, we know they do that. But I don't think we do, we realize that they're doing it, behind, you know, secretly and inserting these memes into our public discourse. So I'm using the Google Ingram. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, what was the very first reference you found the The term conspiracy theory had come up in a book by Charles and Mary Beard in 19, like 1913. It was, it was called The Conspiracy Theory of the 14th Amendment, and it was written about in academic. It wasn't popular. You can't find it in the, in the newspapers, but you can find it in, in, their, in their scholarly work. And there was a letter to an editor around 1935 complaining about the conspiracy mentality. And there was a, uh, a story in like 1963 that was before the Kennedy assassination that was about the conspiracy mindset. So you pick up a little thing, but what you don't see is it being used 25, 30 times. Yeah. I mean, specifically in the New York Times was the first use. 64. 50, no, it, it's picking this up. It picks up an earlier year because the data, as far as I can tell, the Google data has some, some year mistakes in it. If you go back and track the original sources. The main problem we have that has influenced our thinking with the conspiracy theory label is it causes us to look at these events as isolated events. Like we have conspiracy theories of Kennedy, of John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, but we don't have conspiracy theories of, of assassinations. We don't look at them together. If I say the term, if I say Kennedy assassination, I'm talking about President Kennedy. Nobody ever uses the term Kennedy assassinations, plural. But those were connected conspiracies, obviously. John Kennedy was running for president. His brother was running for president. When does his brother get killed? His brother gets killed on the night he wins the Democratic primary in California. Okay, so there's, there's obvious connections, and yet we don't say Kennedy assassinations. We don't say 9-11 anthrax. The anthrax occurred immediately after 9-11. It shaped the way we saw it. 9-11 was scary, but it was just in New York. The anthrax could have hit anybody, anywhere. It, it was very frightening. And yet we separate those in our minds. The term conspiracy, if you, if you have multiple conspiracies 
That's called organized crime or serial crime. And we should use that term instead of conspiracy. But it causes us to look at events in, in isolation. Watergate, burglary. 2000 and 2004 elections. Those were almost identical in terms of the sabotage that was done. Making it difficult for minorities to register, putting too few machines in the urban democratic stronghold so the longs were real line, long, the lines were real long and people would get discouraged and go away. There were an, computer anomalies. The, when, in Florida, the exit polls showed uh, Gore winning by three percentage points. And when the voting returns came back, it was Bush and uh, 500 votes more. Same in Ohio. The exit polls showed uh, Kerry winning by two or three points, and then when they count the votes, well, that should tell you something. I call it incident-specific myopia. And I point out to people that this is the opposite of the way we view ordinary crimes. If, if a husband marries a wealthy, a man marries a wealthy woman and she falls in the shower and is killed, and he inherits a bunch of money, we're automatically suspicious because it's an improbable event and he benefited. If he then marries another wealthy woman and she falls and hurts or gets killed in a similar accident, we're convinced that this is a plot. I mean, our, our minds are automatically suspicious. What happened, what they've done, and this is the way these memes work, they're normal, rational processes. When you see things occur, you tend to look at a pattern and you, you suspect things. And what the conspiracy theory meme is doing is breaking down that rational process. You're not supposed to think about connected crimes. You're not supposed to suspect these people. And so you look at them one by one, and you miss the connections between them, opposite of the way ordinary people. I mentioned, this is a Cass Sunstein article. I may have mentioned it. He is advocating that people who are in conspiracy theory groups online me and my friends, I guess, is who he's talking about, that they should be cognitively disrupted. What I think he means is that we sh- they're planting trolls, they're sometimes called, people to get on these online conversations and introduce arguments and ideas that are disruptive and make it very difficult for people to coalesce and strategize constructively about that. I mean, it is breathtaking hypocrisy, that what he's proposing. And this is a guy who was head of information... Uh, the Office of Information in the Obama administration until recently. What he's saying is we're going to conspire to stop people from saying the government conspires. It's unbelievable. I mean, these people are twisted, deeply twisted. Yeah, I call it linguistic thought control. I think we have to have a a name for this stuff, Uh, subliminal indoctrination. Sounds kind of paranoid, but if they're... Double speak, yes. Yeah, I went back and read 1984, and he has an appendix in that book that talks about the language and how they were, he thought that they were taking out the emotions out of language and using all these acronyms that shaped your thinking and left you unable to connect your own life to what was going on. I just have a list of 18, 20 scads. We've talked about most of these. I I include McCarthyism. The attempted assassination of George Wallace. Wallace was running as a third-party candidate. He had the potential to draw away votes from Nixon. Ross Perot, when he ran, he got 20% of the votes nationally, but he took those votes from, from Bush, 
and Bush lost to Clinton. So this was a, a, a real fear. Wallace said that Nixon was behind it. He went to the FBI and complained about it. He said, how could this guy be stalking me? Where did he get the weapon? He was staying in expensive hotels. I didn't know my schedule. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Somebody had to be helping him. Watergate, we've discussed. The attempt on Reagan is a little less clear, but I'll, I'll show you some stuff that might surprise you. The, Why do you suppose they, they go for Reagan? Well, the, the Reagan, Reagan got a shot three months after he was in office. And the person who shot him, this guy Hinckley, Bush was asked about Hinckley. Did he know him? Had he ever heard of him? He said, no, I don't know anything about these people. I've never heard of them. I have no connection to them. Well, it turns out the Hinckley family have been donating money to his campaigns, lots of money, big money. And then it turned out that the, the brother, the, the, uh, one of the Bush sons, Neil. Neil, was having dinner with the Hinckley's brother the night after the assassination. And you see assassin, you see connections like that and it's just it's very troubling it's very troubling so i include this as a low probability but i would still consider it wellstone i have in here he was killed in a plane crash when the senate was evenly divided and debating about going to war in iraq i tell my students do not fly on airplanes with u.s senators when the senate is evenly divided okay it's a big risk there's practical implications to my Theories and research. Iraq, 2004. The bogus terror alerts were when they would raise the thing from yellow to orange. Every time Bush's support would go down, there'd be a terror alert. And that's a manipulation. If you just look at the confirmation, most of these are well confirmed. Maybe not officially, but many officially. A few are not so well confirmed, but still are awfully suspicious, including 9-11. And then the low confirmation are the ones that we just haven't gotten confessions. We haven't gotten people talking. We haven't gotten, you know, forensic evidence, medical evidence, and that kind of thing. This was the article in the Houston Post on Reagan, on uh, Bush's son dining with the suspect's brother. I tracked this down through our interlibrary loan. People who do these kinds of crimes, most of them are lawyers. They know the law. They know it very carefully, and they know what they can do with evidence and so on. They've sworn these secrecy oaths. Ellsberg said that the oath that they swear means that even if in, they're in Congress and they're asked something, they, they, they can't say that they know something, that it overrides their, their uh, sworn oath to Congress. Compartmentalization, conflicts of interest, we know about that. And then, of course, if worse comes to worse, when we've finally got them pinned down, they pardon everybody who might testify against them. They tend to cluster around elections. So the 64 election, the 68 election, 72 election, the 80, 2000, 2004. So, so when you have a presidential election... Be on the lookout for these things. If you look at what are the most common modus operandi, I'm trying to use this criminological lingo because I find it helpful. The most common is assassinations, and I'm counting these as six, and Lady and Nashville, the, the Senate leaders who received the anthrax letters, uh, I don't include in this six. So it would be eight if you included that. So that's a, a very common one, and it's an, a, an old historic political crime. you you got to... 
somebody that you're competing with, kill them. Manipulation of foreign events to, to stir up fear and warmongering is almost as common as assassination. And that's another one that is the language speaks to us about false flag operations and provocations, uh, agents provocateur, that kind of thing. Provocations, the election tampering, and then the burglary. The black bag job is something that they do, but they do. It's more likely they do that to us as opposed to a very high leader. They, but the most common ones use the skills and taxes, tactics of the military and intelligence. It's a signature, in effect. If you look at the confirmation in terms, so these are the high confirmation, the medium, and the low. And if you look at what they are, the things that we don't learn about are assassinations. They're very hard. People don't confess to murder. It's really hard to get that out. They, they will confess to the, you know, McNamara confessed that they knew the Gulf of Tonkin was bogus. He said this on a film. So they'll confess to things like that, but they won't confess to treason and assassination. It's hard to get that information out. And I think that that's the attitude we should have. When we see an assassination, we should realize it's going to be very hard for us to uncover this. We should be very skeptical about what the government says, and we should be insisting on a thorough investigation. Most of the time, these are done for the benefit of military activities, either start a war, prolong a war, create fear of a war. And there are some that are just political opportunism. You know, Nixon was a murderer, and Johnson was. This has come out recently that he, he had a hired killer that worked for him in Texas. And when you're running against people like that, you know, you likely think about it. Basically, everybody that ran against Nixon got killed. Okay? John Kennedy lost, beat Nixon in 1960. He gets assassinated in 63. Robert Kennedy is running against him in 1968 and would have won if he if he lived. He gets whacked. And George Wallace is running against him in 72, and he gets killed or crippled. You know, if you saw that in an ordinary crime, you know, you'd be saying, well, this is obvious. We should be talking to Nixon. Let's find out where this guy was. What do his friends say? Let's talk to his underlings. Let's uh, promise them if they'll confess that we'll give them a, a, a good deal. Any ordinary guy, that's what would happen to him. President of the United States, forget it. It's not illegal if the president does it. Yeah, that's what their attitude is. That's what Nixon said. If you look at the assassination targets, it's only presidents. It's not vice presidents. It's not U.S. Supreme Court it, senators and presidents. It's not the Supreme Court. I don't want to put any thoughts in anybody's head. But the Supreme Court justices, they don't have protection. Uh, They go jogging down in Washington. They have enormous power. People say, well, people don't know who they were. Let me tell you, when I was growing up, there were signs all over the South that said, impeach Earl Warren. Literally. Literally. People knew who Earl Warren was in the South. No House member since... Gabrielle, or until Gabrielle, and, and there's no evidence to suggest that that was any kind of scan. But, you know, there are a lot of House members. I was in Washington about six months ago, was walking around Congress, and Ron Paul came walking by. And I saw her, I said, I said boy, I just really you inspire me. I think it's great the things you do. But I thought, and he, he said thanks and walked on, and I thought, 
I could have killed him right there. I mean, I wouldn't have done it. I don't want you to get that. But, because I like him at least. But, I mean, the point was, he had no protection. He was just out in the open and there were no gun screens or anything. There was nothing to prevent people from being around him with weapons. So it's bizarre that it's the president that gets targeted. The one thing about the president is they only get shot when you've got a, a very different vice president who, like Johnson was a real hawk when Kennedy was a dove. George H.W. Bush was a CIA-connected guy when Reagan was more of an isolationist in some ways. And I think the Bushes figured this out, actually, uh, when George H.W. Bush appointed Dan Quayle as his VP, sort of assassination insurance. <laughs> and, and, and George W. Bush appointed Cheney. I mean, you know, are you really going to kill him and get Cheney for president? Nixon actually said when Ford got appointed vice president, he said, uh-oh, I am really worried now. I wasn't worried before when had Agnew, because they weren't going to impeach me and have Agnew president. But now Ford is vice president. I'm in trouble. So they, they think about this. They're increasing, and they tend to occur around particular administrations. The Bush people are really very suspect. I think we should be very very cautious about them. They, there have been a lot of crimes committed while members of their family were in office. And Jeb Bush may run, so... Yes, sir. You mentioned the King assassination earlier. Yes. Of course, William Pepper has done... It's an excellent book, yes. Yes. And he's now investigating Robert Kennedy. Yes. And Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr., came out about six months ago and said that he thought it was a conspiracy and that uh, Douglas's book, The Unspeakable, was a good account of it. The Kennedys have never spoken about this. And, you know, you, you, people say, well, why? I mean, why would they not speak out? For one thing, they're afraid of getting killed, which is a reasonable fear. But the other thing is there's the elites. This is like the worst taboo. If you speak ill of a fellow elite, it's just a terrible thing. So they, I think they think of protecting their class interest as more important. I think you remember that this doesn't just happen in this country. Uh, one example in Mexico in 1994, there was a reformist candidate named Colosio who was murdered uh, by someone from the official party. And yeah. uh, it's, never been, it's never been solved. So it, it happens in other places. But one, one interesting thing I wanted to, to question you on is when your articles are rejected by official magazines and publications, uh, why not go to somewhere like Mother Jones, the progressive, some of the other really good alternative media out there? It was Mother Jones that exposed the Romney comment before the last Do you know what? I have, I, I, I've tried to publish in the New York Times. I did get this article in the, in the Guardian. But frankly, my perception is that the left will go all the way up to, but they won't step over the line where we talk about crime. I mean, and we can talk about scandal. We can talk about immoral behavior. But when we talk about crime, that these people are murderers, these people are traitors, these people are embezzlers, you know, nah, we can't talk, we can't say that. <laughs> That's just too much. It's too much because it implies an action in response. If, if our leaders are murderers, we can't just sit back. You know, if they're if they're unscrupulous, well, that's okay. If you're, you know, having an affair with the intern, oh, well, that's okay. 
I would like to hear your interpretation of why Ronald Reagan chose H. George H. W. Bush as his vice president. The story is that Rockefeller went to him and said, "You got to do it. This is our guy." And they said, "They said in the CIA, Bush had been in the CIA, and they said when the campaign posters were put up." Surreptitiously in the in the CIA, there'd be a campaign poster for Reagan Bush, but they would always tear it and take Reagan out, and it was just. But look, they named the building after Bush, the CIA headquarters building. They 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 say he protected them during the Church Commission hearings and all that. I mean, if we saw the Soviet Union, the head of the KGB become the head of the Soviet Union, which is what we saw. With Putin basically comes ahead of us. I mean, we'd automatically think, well, this guy's connected. This guy's going to be a gangster of sorts. And but we we haven't said that about our own system. We're, yes, ma'am. You have much to say about scads since 2008. The Syria is a scad. If they, if we go into that, Libya, in a way, is a scad. I, I mean, it, it was a violation of international law. It subverted the democratic process because. Obama got a tortured Office of Legal Counsel memo saying it wasn't an act of war. So he knew what he was doing. He was subverting it. I, I'm still holding uncertain the Boston Marathon bombing. I was looking for a connection. There was a, a, a peculiar thing that did happen, and that was there were ricin letters that were mailed in Alabama or somewhere. And it occurred right with this. And the, so I, I got to thinking, well, you know, this is very similar to 9-11 where you have this bombing terrorist attack and then the um, chemical, biological attack. And I, I got to thinking, well, maybe it was a booster shot, you know, from the higher-ups. They thought, you know, we needed a little jolt. They, they didn't want to do a full-blown nuclear attack or something like that, dirty nuclear bomb somewhere, really get us freaked. But they felt like they needed to, I know it sounds very paranoid, but that's what I, if you go back and read NSC 68 and you realize that the government doesn't trust you, the government thinks you are a liability in their effort to maintain your freedom, your viability. Once you realize that, you have to understand they, they see this as a responsibility to take care of us. And that may mean sacrificing us at times. Yes? Behind all of this, these scads, appears to be a huge profit motive. And uh, don't we see the banks? Yes. Uh, who make their highest profit by far funding war and defense contractors. Yes. And these are the people at the apex of of these crimes. And yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a war machine and it's a, a financial machine. I have a friend in Australia that writes about economic scads, or he calls them, econ yeah, economic scads. They're state crimes that are anti-democratic, but their motive is profit. And and there's some specific instances he has in Australia where the government is literally creating projects to fund these nefarious organizations. And they know it's uh, it's it's you know waste of money. So anyway, yes, it's an economic component. What I to some extent I've tried to I try to stay on the on the crimes 
and get the empirical evidence and then abstract away from that to consider what's the nature of the criminal. And what I'm seeing is all the crimes, or very many of them, are related to war and militarism, and certainly they benefit the armaments companies um, and to some extent the banks as well. But I, part of what I'm trying to do is create a foundation of, of work and forensic methods. I think of it as SCAD detectives. We're like Sherlock Holmes for the 21st century. And we're trying to figure out how do we investigate these people. When I look at science, it, what it, the way it progresses, it uses observation methods. So the telescope it was a huge advance for us. We saw moons circling around other planets. Uh, the microscope leads us to germ theory eventually. The thermometer, temperature, we learned that everybody has a, the same temperature. You, they used to think everybody had a different temperature. And so what I've been thinking about is, well, we need observation methods for SCAD detection, for state crime detection. And, for example, um, after every election, we should have an audit of the ballots against the exit polls. If we can't do that, we should at least have the statisticians look at it. They've got techniques now where they can tell when the numbers are made up, there, there are certain patterns to look for. But that should, and if the government won't do it for us, we're going to have to do it for ourselves. And that's pretty much what's been happening. After 2004, Steve Freeman, a statistician at the University of Pennsylvania, looked at all the exit polls and the election returns and compared them and found that 11, 10 out of 11 battleground states had statistically improbable deviations of the returns from the exit polls, and they always favored Bush. And he said the, and he calculated the probability of that given the difference between the, the exit poll and the, and the uh, returns and the sample sizes. And he said the odds of that happening by chance were like a zillion to one. But we need methods like that. His paper was published on the Internet, it, and a lot of people followed it. It led to a lot of uh, activity in Florida about elections. But, you know, we, we need to institutionalize this stuff. Yes, sir, here you. Well, we privatized the election counters. Contract laid out. It's, it's unbelievable. The software is private property. Yes, it's, un- it's unbelievable. And why we would put our elections in the hands of people that we, even if they're, the, even if they're angels, why we would do that, is, it just makes no sense. I was, when um, the Orange Revolution occurred in, U- in the Ukraine, one of their candidates who eventually wins the presidency, was poisoned with uh, something that made his face real bad. I don't know if you remember that. And um, they were interviewing his campaign manager right before the election, and they said, well, you know, do you have any worries about the election? He says, yeah, I'm worried about keeping my guy alive. And, you know, they said, well, really? He said, well, yeah, think about it. They, we're talking billions of dollars in government contracts and policy affecting, you know, all kinds of things. You think the stakes are not enormously high? People wouldn't do something like that? Well, think about the United States elections. Huge financial implications, huge ideological implications. And then we're going to set it up where we have voting machines with no paper trail that are vulnerable to hacking and that you can, you can actually plant programs in the machines that switch votes between candidates and then erase themselves at the end of the day. 
I think I need to go back and look at Vince. What was the guy's name? He shot himself twice in the head. Foster. Vince Foster. Went to a park and shot himself twice in the head. That's interesting. 